the idea of perspective is power actually informs the whole of people's stuff. So I got called to write this book when conversation after conversation with clients, I said, what's your biggest challenge in leadership? They're like, uh, people, team dynamics. I got struggles with the CEO. I got struggles with my team. And it was always about the people interactions. They were okay with strategy. They were okay with making decisions, but it was the subtleties and nuances of the people that they wrestled with. And so when I was putting the book together and I was thinking about what's going to be the message and uh, material and frameworks that are going to support people the most, it really boiled down to this idea of perspective and that how we see ourselves, how we see each other and how we see the bigger picture can make or break our leadership legacy. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. What gets you up in the morning? What drives your decisions? What do you stand for? No idea, not even sure where to start? I use my values to guide my life and career. It's the basis of how I've built boundaries for myself and stuck to them. Are you ready to dig into what matters to you? Go to thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet. That's thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet to get to your core values and take action on what matters most. Welcome to this week's episode of You Belong in the C-Suite. I'm really excited to have our guest with us today, Zoe Routh. She is a leadership expert specializing in the people stuff. She shows leaders and teams struggling with office politics and silos how to work better together. She has worked with individuals and teams internationally since 1987. From the wild rivers of Northern Ontario to the remote regions of Australia, Zoe has spent the last 30 years showing teams how to navigate the wilderness of people stuff. Zoe is the author of four books. Her fourth book, People Stuff, Beyond Personality Problems, an advanced handbook for leadership, won book of the year at the Australian Business Book Awards in 2020. Her past leadership roles include training director at Outward Bound Australia, Chair of the Outdoor Council of Australia, President of the Chamber of Women in Business, and Program Manager at the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation. Zoe is also the producer of Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast, a show about all things people stuff and leadership. Zoe is an outdoor adventurist and enjoys telemark skiing, has run six marathons, is a one-time belly dancer, and has survived cancer. She loves hiking in the high country. She is married to a gorgeous Aussie and is a self-confessed dark chocolate addict. We talked about so many things, including archetypes that can help leaders be wise and compassionate, about systems within organizations that are incentivizing the wrong behaviors, how leaders can take action on long-term planning, and we also talked about the process of writing books, which was really fun. 
I can't wait for you to hear our discussion. Let's get started. Well, welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm really excited for our guest today. Can you please give us your intro and just a little bit more about your career before we get started? I would love to. Thank you so much, Laura. It's great to be here. Uh, well, my name is Zoe Routh, and I have escaped Canada to end up in Australia. That happened about 25 years ago. And I was uh, having grand adventures in the summer, leaving canoe trips in Northwest Ontario that led me to think, what shall I do? Shall I stay in the adventurous life or shall I go in and study English literature? And I went, you know what? I'm sick and tired of reading about other people having lives. I'm going to have one for myself. So I chose the adventurous life and that led me to hop across the pond and end up here in Australia leading personal and leadership development programs with Outward Bound and then setting up my own business on another separate adventure about 20 odd years ago. I love it. And what do you love about the people stuff, which is the title of your, your newest book? <laughs> well, I think one of the things I worked out when I was trying to make that big decision, what shall I do, university or adventure? I thought about the things that really lit me up and it was always about hanging out with other humans. And I love being part of groups. I love leading groups. And I just found it such a tremendously powerful experience to work together in a team. And that sense of connection and camaraderie is what I love most about the people stuff in leadership. And then also figuring out why people do what they do. Yeah, absolutely. I have a background in graduate school in personality research and I've always enjoyed understanding like what makes people tick and motivations behind behavior. So I, I am with you. I am geeking out here <laughs> along with you. And I am, I love to understand a little bit more about some of the, the content in the book. And we talked previously about this idea of perspective is power. Can you tell me more about that? Well, the, the idea of perspective is power actually informs the whole of people's stuff. So I got called to write this book when conversation after conversation with clients, I said, what's your biggest challenge in leadership? They're like, uh, people, team dynamics. I got struggles with the CEO. I got struggles with my team. And it was always about the people interactions. They were okay with strategy. They were okay with making decisions, but it was the subtleties and nuances of the people that they wrestled with. And so when I was putting the book together and I was thinking about what's going to be the message and uh, material and frameworks that are going to support people the most, it really boiled down to this idea of perspective and that how we see ourselves, how we see each other and how we see the bigger picture can make or break our leadership legacy. So that the more we see, the better we lead. And the first part of the book is really about exploring. How do we see better? Like, how do we actually get a bigger picture of what's going on? Uh, and it's like the skills and practice of developing perspective that then informs how do we look at ourselves and how do we look at other people and the dynamics we have with each other and then the bigger picture in the end. Oh, I love that so much. And I, you know, I've had a career in HR and, um, the people stuff, that's, that's the stuff that takes sometimes the most time, right. And it takes the practice and, um, the people stuff feels like it's gotten harder in the pandemic. We've got remote workforces. We've got hybrid workforces. We've got you know, trying to work through safety and security of employees. And it feels like leaders, um, more is demanded of them right now. Employees are asking for more. I think even generationally, like millennials are expecting really great managers. Yeah. 
So in this volatile world, like how, how can we develop ourselves to be the compassionate leaders that we need to be? And, and how do you talk about that in the book? There are actually huge new demands on leaders right now. And what I tell my leaders that I'm working with is that one of the key skills they need to hone and develop is facilitation skills, <laughs> because that's essentially what you're doing. Like you've got to learn how to facilitate your team dynamics through Zoom or whatever other platform. And if you cannot hold a conversation and get the issues on the table in person, then you're never going to be able to do it through screen. So it's a serious impediment. So honing people's facilitation skills is really important. The other aspect of what's needed right now is, as you alluded to, is this idea of wise and compassionate leadership. And we need the best of our hearts and the best of our minds to come to the table. So the way that I explore this in the book is through archetypes. And there's kind of one major archetype that sits above all other archetypes that I think leaders can channel and, and lean into to help them develop the wise and compassionate way to lead. And it's the archetype of the elder. And the elder goes across many different uh, traditions and communities and peoples around the world. And it's got similar traits. So the elder is, has, is wise in terms of that they make sensible decisions. So they make the best decision knowing what they know at the time. And they make compassionate decisions, which is using the best of their heart. And how do you do that? How do you develop wisdom? How do you develop compassion? The, the way they develop wisdom is learning how to, to see. So you develop your perspective. You look far into the time horizons in the future and far into the past to see what the trends and patterns are. Uh, you look broadly around you to see what the trends are happening around you. And then you look deep to figure out what are the systems and patterns that are driving specific outcomes and behaviors. And that gives you a, a way of starting to wrestle with wisdom. The compassion piece is always about focus on others. And this is about understanding what are the patterns are, the systems are that are driving people's behavior. And you would know that as an HR specialist, that it's not just personality problems or personality differences, though that has some part to play. It's often the structures that we have in the workplace that drive difficult interactions. So the compassionate piece is being able to understand what people's motivators are, drivers are, sensitivities are, hot buttons and triggers are, mm -hmm. and be able to respond to that in the moment, as well as design workplace systems that alleviate or, or avoid some of those triggers uh, that facilitate positive interactions. Can you give an example of building a system that does not have those within it? Yeah. So some of the usual suspects of systems that can cause problems, these are the first ones to look at are remuneration. How are people paid? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yep. because the way that we pay people, the, the bonus system, which is so prevalent in some industries and very prevalent in the United States across the corporate sector is not always a useful strategy to building engagement and commitment and loyalty. In fact, I have a friend here who is part of the bonus system here in Australia, and she just hung out and waited to stay at the company until she got her bonus, and then she buggered off. And the company has a bonus system in place to build loyalty, but they missed out on all the other key patterns. So remuneration can actually cause other poor behaviors like competition between uh, staff members, and it can drive silos and lone wolf activity, which is never conducive to strong team dynamics or uh, collaboration or innovation or anything. So remuneration is absolutely one of the systems that you can look at to dismantle and restructure 
I love that example that you just said about your friend who left because I used to work at a really big company and when did a lot of people leave? They waited to the exact time of year and you knew after they got their payouts that you would see people leave the company, right? Yeah. And if that was your company, you'd be thinking, hang on a minute. And the usual reaction is, they're they're so disloyal. They're so selfish. It's like, um, why are they leaving? You know, it's probably the way that you're treating them. So, you know, it's, it's the promotion system, the transparency around that recruitment system, the transparency around that it's simple things like recognition is one of the things that is easy to implement that will help people not want to just cut and run after they get their bonus. And recognition is simple in some ways, and everybody likes it a little bit differently, but it's really just showing someone appreciation for the work that they've done and identifying the contribution to the outcome of of their work that has a higher purpose within the organizational framework. Everybody likes being told they're doing a good job. It doesn't take time or energy to do that. That's a really simple and easy way to do that. And we often forget about it. We get busy. There's other stuff to handle. We've got our own work to do. We've got bloody another Zoom meeting on the boil, all that kind of stuff. But taking time out to say, hey, you know, Laura, the way that you set uh, this meeting up was really excellent. I love the preview material is really helpful. And you've been really gracious and welcoming to get on the show. Like example, easy thing to say, takes no minute and it needs to be genuine. And of course, it makes such a big difference to people's morale and interest in their work and the people they work with. It really does. And do you find that you had mentioned before different archetypes, do you find that the elder archetype through, you know, their wisdom and compassion can do that or lends itself to that? Or is that trained? Is it personality based? How can you get good at that kind of stuff? Uh, It is not personality based. It's absolutely something that you can lean on the way that I encourage people to use archetypes and the elder is, is just one of them. And I find it is the most useful one because if ever in doubt, what should I do? It's like, what would an elder do or say in this situation? If they're being wise and compassionate, I'm like visualizing somebody who's 80 or 90 or older, who's lived a long time on the planet, lots of world experience. What would my elder say to me? If it's me at 80 or 90, like, will this matter in five minutes? Will this matter in five years? Will this matter in 50 years? And you can channel the best of the heart and best of mind through that practice. So it's like asking that, question through somebody else's lens. So exercising perspective in that way. And it's also, you can use archetypes, you can embody them in some ways. And the way that you do that is by having little reminders around you to help you do that. Whether it's physical things like a picture of an inspiring elder, or I have a client who had uh, his necklace with little blocks of letters, which was WW. JD. And for him, it was, what would Jesus do? So Jesus is his mentor. And that was his reminder of when I'm thinking about what I should do, what would my elder of Jesus help me to make the best kind of decision? So you can use kind of like these tangible, practical reminders to remember to focus your choices through that particular lens. Somebody else has got another one. What would love do in this particular situation? So that's using a concept as opposed to a an elder archetype. I find like archetypes are easier to channel than concepts because we imagine them as humans. We, whatever pattern of humans we've experienced in that archetype, we can bring to the table. And so it feels a little bit more real than let's say the concept of love or compassion. Like what would compassion do in this? Like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) But what, 
you know, but what would Maya, my favorite elder, do in this particular scenario? I can imagine that and I can pretend to be her in that particular situation. And then that that helps a lot. No, thank you so much for that added context. That's very tangible and actionable thing for leaders to do. Um, you had mentioned systems that really don't work. And in our previous conversation, we were talking about this idea of long-term and short-term planning and how to avoid some of these traps. And I'm like super interested in this topic. It's like one of my, the things that I think you had mentioned before this idea that, yeah, we can all learn, you know, some of these things to do strategic and, and whatever, but I feel like leaders are still falling into these like short-term planning cycles, just like we haven't gotten, you know, pay right or recognition, right. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It's such a hard one because it's, it's a system design. So if you take, for example, the political system and it's similar in the United States, like in Australia, we have a three-year election term cycle. So three years is very short term. And so you just get elected and you see the politicians start to work on their election strategy. Feels like almost immediately as soon as they get into office, as opposed to governing and governing for the long term. And when you're in government, you're setting up infrastructure and policies and laws that will have a long reaching effect. And I think there's it's similar in business when we have 90 day uh, reporting cycles, like quarterly reporting cycles, we work towards getting the results across the line in that quarter. And we don't necessarily think about what is this activity gonna mean for us in three, five, 10, 15, 20 years? Because what we're working on now could make a huge difference for our long-term effectiveness. But if we have quarterly reporting cycles that account to our uh, shareholders and they judge us on those quarterly reports because it means they get money in or not into their own pockets, then it's going to scupper our attention or funnel our attention into particular activities just to get that particular outcome. And it's hugely problematic because we may end up doing all these short-term activity that goes nowhere. And we end up treading water going backwards, especially if we get caught on the back foot with something like a pandemic and we didn't do enough risk management, which is long-term thinking uh, and long-term planning. If we're not prepared for these types of events, then we're going to be walking a thin line all the time. So that's a couple of examples where remuneration reporting and systems drive this behavior that isn't helpful in the long-term. And it takes really savvy leadership to say, okay, what, how do we manage this? Can we break out of the quarterly reporting cycle? Maybe, maybe not. That may be too difficult a thing to transform in the short term. It's a question of and rather than or. It's like, okay, we have short-term reporting cycles and we have a long-term future to look at. It's uh, It's a polarity that I help leaders navigate all the time. It's this polarity of what's happening now and what's happening next. And we need to flow between the two of them. We can't just be too obsessed on the now because what's next is always, it's coming. <laughs> and what we do now can, can see the future so, so much better. So say for example, I'm working on a 10 year plan for my own professional life. And that seems like a long time in such a volatile, ambiguous state of affairs right now. And sometimes it feels really hard to do that because 10 years is so far away. It's hard to imagine 10 years from now. But I think the way that I help leaders do that and the way I do it for myself too is like, 
who are you serving today? Are you serving your current self or your future self? And you need to make sure that you do a bit of both. So exercise, serve, as an example, serves both current self and future self. I know the exercise I do today will be really beneficial for how I feel for the rest of the day. And it will also serve my future self by keeping me limber and strong, et cetera. So my future health will be rewarded. Those are the best kind of activities that they serve now and next. <laughs> I really, I love the idea of serving now and next. And the leaders that I coach, I feel just like you described, it's very common, this idea of quarterly and reactive, like um, we're reacting to this, we're reacting to that. There, and that leaves not a lot of time to even do strategic planning, to do strategic thinking. And it's hard for them to even get out of the reactive mindset because it, it, you know, they're putting out fires and they're solving a problem to make those quarterly numbers. Right. And, um, I find that it's how interesting it is that these very senior leaders literally aren't taking, you know, time, even in a given week to think, the next, right? Even, even annual, like as they get into annual planning, because it's time to do that, they'll do that. Like right now in the U S a lot of people are starting their annual operating plans for the next year and all the things, but they're only doing that because they're required to, to think it. And so they're like, Oh, okay, well now I can start thinking about the next year, right? <laughs> because it's in the business yeah. planning cycle. So how else I love this idea of doing it for yourself and your career, and then building in strategic time often to be able to think now and next to figure out how that serves you. It's great. Leaders find that really hard because one of the reasons they find it so hard is the biochemistry aspect of it. Like dealing with the urgent and now hooks all of our dopamine receptors and our adrenaline and our cortisol. So this kind of like energizing biochemicals in our body get triggered by doing that short-term stuff. So Stephen Collier has a saying, says never trust the dopamine. Because dopamine appears when you clear out your emails, that's sort of like clearing out lists and ticking things off the getting stuff done, finding stuff is gives us a little surge of like, feels like a little win. And we mistake that sense of satisfaction and accomplishment and false sense of progress with these crappy little tasks and which are often reactive and stuff. And so it's very easy to stay stuck in that. Like if you're scrambling with what to do, you go for the stuff that gives you a bit of surge of like, that feels good. I'll just get that off my table. Instead of the long-term work, which requires a different set of biochemicals in order to get the really productive, effective work done that way. And so leaders need to learn how to change gears, not just use one gear at work. And the adrenaline, dopamine, cortisol uh, system is not the one that we have to rely on all the time. Plus, it leads to burnout unless we switch over and get some oxytocin and serotonin from doing the people work, by the way. And so what leaders can do to help set themselves upright for this, it's not just about scheduling strategic time in the diary, because God, how many leaders, um, you're probably the same, who's like, I'm going to do that. And they schedule their two hours and they get to the two hours and like, um, right, strategic thinking, right, right. What do I do? What do I do? And if, they get distracted. Yeah. If they don't <laughs> schedule over it, right. Usually it's like, oh, well, oh, sure. I can meet with you. Yeah. I have some time. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. This is, and part two, two reasons why that happens is they can't change gears out of the short-term reward systems of the dopamine. And two, they don't necessarily have a plan for that strategic thinking. They don't have the frameworks in order to process their thinking. Like strategic thinking is not sort of sitting in a room and going, what shall we do? And just <laughs> plucking things from the sky. Like it's, 
um, that's a waste of time. Like using specific planning tools or reflection tools is the way to go about doing that. And there's a couple in my book, people stuff that people can lean on or a Google search of strategic thinking models will help. There's, a, there's that aspect, but it's also setting yourself up to get into flow. And flow is that fabulous creative productive state that was first uh, charted or described by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And I'd point people to the work of Stephen Kotler and his book, The Art of Impossible, which is a fantastic book. Have you read that one? I have. Oh, it's so good. Finally, he, he's written about flow heaps in his last few books, but this one was like a very detailed how-to book, which he found difficult to write, by the way, um, which I find interesting, but yeah, it's it is. It's ironic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, uh, I don't like this how-to stuff. He likes more of the descriptive and storytelling, which I get as an author. But anyway, The Art of Impossible by Stephen Kotler is a great handbook for leaders to dig into. And it talks about the things that you can do to set yourself up so that you can get into this hyper-focused, hyper-productive state. So the three big ones that he alludes to, which are useful for leaders to know, are meditation, which trains our ability to focus, exercise, because that clears out all the emotional and histrionic energy of being hooked on the dopamine, and gratitude. So their research shows that by practicing gratitude, either through journaling or recording or, or contemplation, it puts you into a different frame of mind. By having those three practices going for you, you can actually slip into the state of flow where you become instantly more creative and productive. That's what you want to be doing in your two hours or whatever you plan for in your strategic thinking. So you get in there, it's like, wow, you plow through all this stuff. Instead of leaving it to the last thing on your list and you're like, oh, strategic thinking, it's Friday afternoon. I think I'll just chuff off and have a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't entirely a bad idea sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you feel like a glass of wine, it's Friday afternoon. It's probably, it's probably not a good time for strategic thinking necessarily. <laughs> Well, you mentioned that, um, that you are an author, so I'd love to dig in a little bit more. So people stuff is your fourth book. Can you give us a summary of some of the other things that you've written about and what that process is like? <laughs> okay. I'm laughing because the process, oh my God, let's talk about that first because <laughs> writing books is really hard work. Um, yes. and oh my God, it just, it's a life, it's a process of angst and this is definitely book writing is definitely a future focused task because it's such a long process to get something out the door and into a physical format that you have to stay committed to the idea of this is going to be worth it in the long run because day to day it's like uh, does this make sense is this going to be of service to people so the process yeah oh had the little gremlin on the shoulder hasn't seemed to go hasn't gone away that much third and fourth books it was a little bit less but it was still there so there's a lot of angst. I'm not sure if this is true for every author, but it certainly was true for myself. Now, in terms of the other books I've written, Composure was my first one, How Centered Leaders Make the Biggest Impact. And that really, that book is really about understanding self. It's about exploring what's important to you. It's, it has a piece on archetypes in that as well. It's looking at your own, your own personal beliefs and challenges and your map for the future and facing down your inner demons and inner dragons, as I call them. So that was book number one. Book number two is called Moments, Leadership When It Matters Most. And we explore some of the difficult moments we have in leadership, which is, uh, you know, in the pit of despair is one type of moment. Um, ethical challenges, a rock and a hard place. And then those inter interpersonal uh, situations where you're coming up against other people and how you contend with those. Third book was called Loyalty, Stop Unwanted Staff Turnover and Create Lifelong Advocates. 
And that's all about how you galvanize teams and get them to come together and be a great team to work with. That's what loyalty is about. And people stuff is the fourth one. And it came out last year. Awesome. I so agree with your, um, with your description of the process of writing. I'm, I've just started, uh, well, I'm in the middle of my first book and completely agree. It is angst ridden, (laughs) (laughs) but it's exciting. I guess I'm not in the middle of it. I'm, I'm almost done in the writing process. So there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it's definitely a process. So it is not for the faint of heart. You also mentioned to me earlier that you are now getting into fiction or writing a novel. Is that right? Yeah. And the angst started all over again. (laughs) Is the pro is the book writing process different between nonfiction and fiction? Yes, absolutely. It is. So I did a writing course with Stephen Kotler last year when I started writing this novel, I asked him that exact question. What's different between fiction and nonfiction? Because he's written both. And he said, well, In nonfiction, you're advancing an idea. And in fiction, you're advancing a life. So the story and construct is completely different. What is the same or similar is the way that I write my nonfiction. I'm not sure this is true for every nonfiction writer, is that I write a lot of case study and story in my nonfiction books. And that aspect was very similar in terms of drafting a longer story that carried over however many pages, 100,000 words or whatever. So yeah, there's a lot, I had to go back to the drawing board. So I'm back in newbies, newbie world again, even though I studied English literature in university, that kind of helped actually, just like remembering all the stuff I learned at university and the idea of, uh, of plot, of character development on uh, things you should and shouldn't do and common traps for writers, like all that kind of stuff. So that, I feel like I'm, I'm in a huge learning curve again. So I don't know what I don't know. And I'm, I'm glad I have a good editor who is not afraid of giving me constructive feedback. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's really helpful too. And I think that's, that's good for any author to have is to have a good editor who can pull apart your ideas and, you know, and you just park your ego at the door and listen to what they have to say, because in the end, it's not about your ego. It's about the experience for the reader. And that's really helpful lens to keep in mind when you're writing. It's like, is love. this serving the, is that serving the reader or, or not? I love that serving the reader. And then I feel like there's a parallel as a leader, you're not serving yourself. You're serving the team, the organization. And I really, I really like that. I really like that piece of it. Well, you p- just picked up on a really important aspect of, of what to avoid when you're a leader. And that's a trap of power. And uh, the trap of power is hubris, which is the focus on self and you get self-obsessed and you can default to all sorts of improper behaviors, including impulsiveness and reactivity, and you lose your sense of empathy. And uh, Dr. Keltner writes about this in The Power Paradox, which is a fantastic book. And this whole idea that you, you get energized by power and authority, you get given power and authority by, first of all, serving people by being focused on group outcomes. And they go, hey, you, you're focused on group. Let's put you in charge. And so you're like, oh, cool. And then you get all excited and energized by all the stuff that comes with that, that the lens or your, your perspective goes from looking at others and swivels to focus on self. And that is instantly, not instantly, but it is a path to downfall. So the idea of swivel your lens out again and focus on others is is absolutely the one of the ways to avoid the traps of hubris. Really important to remember that one. Oh, I, I loved everything that you just said. I could not agree more. It's so true. It's so true. And I, and I feel like it's a trap 
um, the ego that you just see leaders fall into so easily, whether it's power, influence, how things are done, not bringing others along, all, all the stuff, lots of, lots of traps to fall into there. It also, also, um, if you're feeling miserable and deflated, that's often because your lens is swivel again back on yourself. And the quickest way out of the feeling crappy is to pivot again and look at how can I reach out to somebody else? How can I make somebody else's day? And that is so uplifting. Even if you don't feel like it, when you reach out to somebody else, they're often so grateful, especially like now through the pandemic here in Australia, there's huge lockdowns again. And so calling someone saying, how are you doing? Uh, even if you feel crappy, it lifts both of you. And I think it's nice to remember that. So focus on others is not just to avoid pride and downfall. It's also to feel good. Absolutely. It goes back to what we first started talking about of the compassionate leader, right? I think that's a, that's a very big attribute of that compassionate leader for sure. Well, I have so enjoyed talking about leadership and books and all of the things with you today. Um, I really want to hear more about this free guide you were telling me about before that can be helpful for leaders. Can you tell me a bit more about it? Sure. It's called How to Spot and Deal with Difficult Behavior in the Workplace. And it unpacks a lot of the four devils of people stuff, which is in my, in, in my book, People Stuff. And so it gives you some uh, maps to navigate the territory of difficult behaviors and some practical solutions for that. And people can grab that for free at my website at zoeroute.com, click on resources, and you can get the guide right there. Perfect. And we will also put that in the show notes in case you missed that. And Zoe, I'm just so thankful and grateful for having you on today and to get to connect with you on leadership and people stuff. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. But before we go, can you just tell me a little bit about your book? I'm, I'm dying to know. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> of course. So my book is about a value-centered approach to um, leading as your authentic self, building boundaries and motivating your team. And so um, a lot of the, some of the stuff that I talk about on this podcast on um, leading with your values to create and model the behaviors that you want in your team. So I'm really excited about it. It's called Values First. It is due to the publisher in about a week. So coming soon. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I'm so excited for you. I can't wait to hear more about it. Congratulations and congratulations on all the work that you're doing. Thank you so, so much. And um, seeing that, and I, I love being able to say it's my first book and people like you that have like multiple books, it's just um, role models for me because I can see how it's done. And I love that you're now in fiction as well, because I also love the style that I write in is based on my personal experience. And then the experience of um, some of my clients and organizations that I work with. And I love telling stories because I just think it's such a powerful, powerful thing to be able to learn from others. And so I like to incorporate story. And while it is nonfiction, it still feels sometimes like I'm writing fiction, even though, or, or, you know, based in real life, I guess. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I totally get it. But it's, um, it's exciting to see other authors and all the really great stuff that they have out. So I'm excited to connect with you and to keep connected. Likewise. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been great being on your show. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, 
please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care. Thank you.